Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transporter beam. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Picard edition. And as per usual, I'm your captain, Michael Flores. And we are on board the USS Rain Man Digital and at the helm, navigating us through trolls and weirdos is Ensign David. Hello. Hello, everybody. So are you ready for your promotion once you uh, (laughs) achieve peak intellectual prowess when your theory proves to be correct absolutely i'm waiting i am just waiting we'll see if it happens dave it it does seem like more and more we're getting close to seeing that theory fully realized there is a lot going on this season and i'm not quite sure where it's all heading there are there are times when i feel okay we are on the right path when it comes to our theories and then there are certain things that detract a bit from my confidence on whether or not we are seeing the future. So stupid. I, don't, I, don't, stupid. I, I lost my train of thought for a second. <laughs> I know. That's, that's the thing. That's the thing about this episode. We, I've lost my train. Uh, during the watching of it, I was like, going, I'm losing my train of thought. What the hell is happening? There's just a, there is a lot of moving parts in this season. And I don't, and I don't know if it's necessary. That is the key. I think that's the conclusion I came to after this episode because we're dealing with 10 episodes and there are so many moving parts and there really isn't a reason for it. Nope. Because the story doesn't really justify the small story doesn't really justify this many moving parts. And I, I, I'm hoping we have two episodes left that the writers will be able to pull it all out and, and effectively bring a, a certain level of resolution to this season. I'm hoping, although I don't know if they're going to be able to answer all of these questions within two episodes. Yes. There's a lot of moving parts. Okay. So this episode's directed by Joe Mendez and written by Cindy Appel and Kristen Beyer. The synopsis with time running out before the launch of the Europa mission Picard and Guinan must free themselves from FBI custody. Seven and Raffi come face to face with Gerardi and the horror of what she's become. Is it really horrific or is it borderline super hot? (laughs) Yeah. Because when she was wearing those combat boots with that red dress and it was showing (laughs) showing some thigh, I was like, Gerardi, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? I can't take it. Wait a minute. Who who is this character? I know she was totally not likable or attractive last season. Now suddenly boobs are out, boobs are out, eyes are showing. She wants to assimilate you. Oh, she can definitely inject me with some nano. What are they called? Nanobots? <laughs> not nanobots. Or oh, nanites. 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 There we go. Yeah. But dude, I, I Gerardi's transformation 
has been amazing. It's almost like the writers went out of their way to, and because they said, okay, we saw in season one that she's the most hated character. We're going to try to make her, we're going to, we're going to re uh, reevaluate her character and kind of like everybody likes boobs and legs, do some recovery on her. They did an amazing job in recovering the character because the character now is probably one of the strongest in season two. Yeah. Her story is interesting. As it's I, interesting. As I've said numerous times. Because essentially we're getting to see something in Star Trek that I think as Star Trek fans, we all constantly wanted to know is the evolution of various races. The, the evolutions of the Klingons, evolution of the Vulcans, the Romulans, but the Borg has been one of those species that is kind of like, okay, after a while, the Borg became the zombies of Star Trek and they, be, they were regulated. They were borderline boring. Overused. The yeah. Overused. Yeah. They never really evolved. And now we're getting to see an evolution of a new queen. That's yeah. going to be that's different. Exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, it really is. Okay. So a few points to get through this episode. Q's existential crisis, or maybe uh, nihilism, which is different. It's a dude, kind dude, of an offshoot of dude, existentialism. We saw this coming too. Because existentialism, for the most part, you try to prescribe your own meaning to life, and it doesn't seem like Q has meaning, which would mean he's more nihilistic. Now it does, based on what we were given this episode, feel like he's trying to find that meaning still. Yeah. So then it could be an issue of existentialism. So that's interesting. And we're going to get into all of that. Gainan is reminded of human resilience and their capacity to evolve. And they neatly tied that back into her reasons why she has always chosen to be close to humanity. The human uniqueness, essentially. The writers giving us the seven from Voyager. Finally, the real seven has shown up has shown up now this season they have been teasing real seven all season long but it wasn't until this episode i mean this is the one that was haunted by loneliness and the odd contradictory comfort of the connectedness through assimilation that was an area that's always been uh, to me very interesting uh, when they delved into those aspects in star trek voyager so to bring an element like that there was such an intricate part of seven's development as a character. It felt it would have felt odd if they didn't use this aspect in this season of Picard, since they're dealing with notions of loneliness and connectedness because of Gerardi's own psychological issues and her loneliness. Yes. In fact, I had said that what four or five episodes ago when they were going in this direction with Gerardi and I had said, this feels more like a seven of nine story it, to me. It really does. And that's why when you pointed that out to me in our notes and stuff for the, sh for this episode, you hit it right on the head is kind of like this storyline should honestly be seven story, especially when during, during that time when she is confronted by the new queen, Seven kind of has that recollection of what it was like to be the drone. That's her story. That's what she should be going through for what Gerardi is going through. But like for some strange reason, they, the writers decided to give this story, which at this point I'm going to say is story. What F 
and give it give it to Girardi because I'm we need to a little spiciness over there, Greg or Greg. Who's Greg? Greg? I, have I ever done Star Trek show with Greg? Greg. <laughs> because like the spiciness is like so so Greg like I'm turning into Greg because of Star Trek. Yeah, well, people don't know who Greg is. He's a a host on our network who's very angry. Very angry. If you want to listen to him, Otaku uh, Otaku on anime. Well, okay. Now we're <laughs> plugging other shows. Exactly. But like unfortunately like with this it goes back to like what you were saying is like there's so many moving parts yeah that's going on why couldn't they just consolidate and just say okay we can sideline Girardi and put seven in this and make it about seven becoming the new board queen which would be awesome yeah but is that really the ending you want to give seven because I thought about that too because they could have easily consolidated two characters because it does. It would have made more sense without knowing what we know now and the story they want to tell this season. It did feel weird at first, but now that we are moving in the direction that may in fact prove that your theory was correct, Dave, I don't know if that's the ending we want to give seven. I think a lot of the fans would be, uh, they would feel odd about that ending for her. Like I, her, I thought she about was about that. it was about escaping her her assimilated Assimilation. past and the feelings of of violation, and then to just get make her essentially the new Borg queen. I, I don't feel like it would go over well with a lot of a lot of Star Trek fans. So Gerardi was the second best thing. Use Seven's story to help flesh out Gerardi's problems and issues. And that's why ultimately, even though, yes, there's an argument to be made that you can consolidate both characters into one. Now that they're using Seven's background to strengthen Gerardi's story, now I'm okay with it because at least they're using what was already established. What was established. Because if they had ignored it, wouldn't that be weird if they just ignored Oh, it would be extremely weird. And they never had seven voice her problems with the issues that are very similar that Gerardi is having. It would be it it would be very similar to season one where basically you had that this moment where seven could have addressed the fact that the Borg were being hunted and killed and essentially her child or her son or adopted son was killed for his Borg implants. And you could have had that. Yeah. But listen, anything's possible. If you're a capable writer, anything's honestly, anything's possible. It really is. But I did think about like what you're bringing up. Is that the, as a Star Trek fan, is that what we want sevens ending to be? And I actually thought about it. I'm like going at first I said, nah, because like, just like you said, her whole story in Voyager is about escaping the collective. But then I thought about it. We say that basically as Star Trek fans, the the whole story of seven was to escape the collective but in actuality if you think about well, it, i guess she to she, learn how to live as an individual maybe yes Is it, but if you yeah. think about it she she was escaping a collective to become part of a family in mm. essence become part of another collective yeah. but it was a, a collective that was more positive it was it a was social a, collective built up of individuals of individuals yeah. right and then think about that. Then you can take that aspect and suddenly she becomes the 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 linchpin to the Borg evolving. And yeah. she takes all of the information and all of like the, the narrative that she learned from her time in Voyager and changes the Borg because of what she learned. 
Yeah. Listen, Dave, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> I'm on board. Like I said, that that's the idea that I had thought as well. Like that would make more sense. That would make more sense. And it's more poetic. Yeah. But like I said, I get what they're doing. This is their story. And what they're doing with Gerardi and seven also works. It works. It's just different. It's different. All right. The FBI plot also comes to a rather brief conclusion. <laughs> really fast too. But the question remains, did it serve a point? Did it serve a point? And we will get into that as well throughout our discussion. Yes. I know there's a lot of people having issues with this season. And we had touched on this a bit last episode. The first season of Picard was already extremely polarizing and it split the Star Trek fandom. And now this season has seemed to fragment the fan base further. further. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The difference is that critically speaking, Critically speaking, season one had issues surrounding the overall writing and severe, severe narrative inconsistencies. It was due to a season not that wasn't fully thought out before starting production. And that much was already said and has been said by the showrunners themselves. This season shows a display of foresight, which is rule number one when writing a screenplay, whether it be for TV or film. The story and its ancillary philosophical messaging that runs parallel to the narrative is what makes this season stronger and, for me, much better than season one. By far, yes. However, in the way of contextual tangibility is where this series is facing an onslaught of criticism. For some, Star Trek is synonymous with the exploration of space. And the setting of this season has become tiresome to many viewers. And they have a valid argument. Usually I don't agree with the naysayers. You know, I feel like a lot of people just want to jump and and get angry when something's different than what they're used to. But when it comes to this specific argument, I'm I'm I'm, you know what I'm just going to say, I side with the rest of the Star Trek fans. And even though I enjoy this season and I do feel like it's a much better endeavor and it's very much on par with Star Trek, I can understand why certain people don't really want to look past the aspect of setting. Like, listen, that's great. Thank you for giving us all the bells and whistles of what essentially makes Star Trek without the actual setting itself. Exactly. So I I understand their complaints. However, I'm also a little less critical because overall the story and what they're doing philosophically is is sound. It, yeah, it's strong. It's strong. It's you can't look at when you compare the two seasons. You cannot compare critically. Yeah, season one and season two, and say season one's better because season one had no, there was no direction. There's zero direction. Yeah. Season two, at least, yes, we have a direction. We have a focal point. The story is centered around Q and Picard. Excellent. Your series is called Picard. Hey, how about we do a story that's centered around Picard? Fantastic. Where I think that basically I I agree with everything that you said about how, like, some fans out there are complaining about it's not taking enough time in space. I agree. You know, I think that's why it was really key in the very beginning. We start in space. We got to see Stargazer. We got three to episodes. see three episodes of Rios 
as the captain of the Stargazer. Fantastic. Now, at this point, it is slightly getting tiresome, but unfortunately, because the narrative they chose, the the setting they chose, they're stuck here. And just as a reminder, if people are just finding this show and they haven't listened to our other prior discussions, even though this isn't in space, this setting is very much a part of Star Trek history. It is. The augment... The rise of the Augments and the war that followed the has already of happened. World war III. The beginning of World War Three. This is all very, very important areas in Star Trek history, chronologically speaking. Us finding ourselves in the 21st century, and of course, the Augment Wars being at the tail end of the 20th century. Yeah. So that's why I find it hard to be unhappy because the story is good. It feels like Star Trek. It's just not in space. And I'll, even though I can look past that, I know that there are other listeners and other viewers, I should say, of Star Trek that can't look past that. And as I said, it's understandable. Now, David, we're going to get into some of these issues toward the end of our discussion. I figured we'd go over our typical hour mark this episode so we can get into all the ins and outs of everything because we've been neglecting some areas because we yes. want to talk about what's actually happening as opposed to what is happening outside of the show itself and possibly also some issues of writing that we might want to get into because I'd like to focus on the positives for the most part of yes. this episode because there were some great things going on in this episode. Uh, so let's just get started. For me, the strength of the season solely relies on the philosophical. Yeah. This is what Star Trek has always been about, the fleshing out of the human condition, the analysis of humanity through an optimistic lens, the idea that humanity can do better. And one way of doing that is looking inward, which is what this season has done really well with. Even with the Soong and Corey stuff, I'm not quite sure if it's important from a story perspective as of yet. But when evaluating the Corey story, it's somewhat similar to the story of Alice in Wonderland. And we have discussed Alice in Wonderland and the many philosophical avenues of this writing or this piece of literature in uh, discussions for Star Trek Discovery, who also utilize the Alice in Wonderland story, which has been used before, as I said. But the parallel philosophical notions of Alice in Wonderland was made clear with how Q offered the cure to Corey yes. with a little tag that says freedom. This was literally taken from the pages of Alice in Wonderland with, with those, with those tonics and foods that Alice ate with their tags of eat me and eat drink, me, drink me. me. So why is this relevant? Well, many academics believe that much of the idea of Alice in Wonderland uh, was a story that represents a child's progression through life. That in the industrialized world, a child has to figure things out on her own. The story of childhood through adolescence, essentially, which leads to the knowing or the knowledge of the self. So in essence, the story of Alice in Wonderland is the quest for self to find the self, a quest to understand our own identity by looking inward and discovering who we are. This is interesting and works in the ways of thematics with the rest of the season yes. so that is what i was able to find in the way of meaning for the dr soon and Corey stuff because it correlates very well with the idea 
of knowing thyself. Yes. Looking inward and figuring out who you are and who you want to be. So when it comes to reasons why this element is included, I have found it and it works. Will it ultimately pay off in a much bigger way? I would hope so, because if you have Q intent on giving Corey freedom, also trying to kill and stop Renee Picard, helping Soong, there's got to be a specific reason outside of the obvious, which was stated in this episode, because that part was also made clear through Gerardi's interaction with with Soong that he is he represents one side of what future can of what the future can look like, where he is essentially worship and I, I idolized by the world for rescuing mankind at the brink of their destruction or the other history, which he's all but forgotten. He's forgotten when Renee Picard discovers whatever she discovers on her Europa mission. So I understand everything that's going on, but ultimately at the end of the day, what does Corey mean outside of thematics and the philosophical? Yeah. And the thing about, the thing about too, that I thought was really cool in a weird sort of way, the story of Corey and Sung adds more depth to the story of the Sung family in general. Because when Corey confronts her father and, you know, she asks him, are you trying to protect your daughter? Or are you trying to protect your legacy? I got vibes from the initial talk of Sung, uh, Noonan Sung to Data when Data talked to his father and his father was talking about how we look at children as our legacy. They're our legacy. They're the ones that carry on our name and everything else. And that's why children are important. Here we're seeing the opposite, the, the birth of that thought process among the Sung family because Adam is actually being asked, is your daughter more important than your, than your legacy? And it's going to be interesting what happens in the end. I think if they were to nicely tie it together with how Data and his father, their relationship, their ideology is the bookend of the Sung legacy, that would be cool. And that's what I started thinking about when I saw when I saw the scene. And I liked it because philosophically it touches on that idea of, of Star Trek where we've always had the question of one's legacy. What does it mean? And the the and I will give the episode this. They stuck to their themes a lot in this episode, right? You know, you look at every single per person that was going through it. You can actually pinpoint and say all their all their storylines tie to one theme of legacy. You look at Sung, it's about his daughter or his legacy, what's more important. Q, going through an existential crisis about how like, you know, is there any meaning to the, life? I would agree with you that legacy could definitely be the overall theme that's governing everything, but also yeah. what's a part of legacy. Legacy is about what you leave behind. What you leave behind. And what you leave behind, how do you figure out what you want to leave behind and how will you discern that? Well, you have to also understand yourself. So all of it connects. The oh, yeah. looking inward, the all these things fit into a neat, coherent box. Oh, yeah. And that's why I say this season is leaps and bounds better, better than, than last season. season. I mean, the thing, the thing with Q2 is like, when he was talking to Guinan about what he was thinking about having his 
existential crisis, I started thinking about all those times in Voyager and all the Q moments that me and you have discussed in, in the, the, throughout the show, our show's history where Q is dealing with themes that are very questionable. Like I started thinking about that, those episodes where they dealt with the Q that wanted to commit suicide. And in the end, Q is left basically having that, watching his associate and friend kill himself. And then he's left with that knowledge that basically, well, what's his legacy? And then when suddenly you flash forward and Q is having the same problem with, with that question of legacy and having that, that idea that uh, he comes to the end of his life and he realizes that there's nothingness. And that, that was even the one thing that was the one thing that absolutely hit me in the feels when, when Q basically tells, I think I put it in my notes that he mentioned about seeing the end and then coming to the realization that uh, where, where was it? That there is nothingness. Yeah. And we'll get into that. Yeah. That's a whole other topic. And I kept, I kept thinking to myself, do you remember what your 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 friend told you before he died? Here, put a pen in it because we do need to get into that because there's a lot. We're going to spend a lot of our discussion today on all that. But let's stick yeah. to the Soong stuff first that you had brought up. So, David, you have a lot of thoughts on Soong. You have a lot of knowledge on Soong. Yeah. In the end, and tell me if you agree or disagree with this, in the end, Soong always chooses the right decision. So this one seems to be very twisted and more selfish than even some of the other Soongs. Yeah, that is, even his grandfather, wasn't it, that basically... Eric Soong was an ancestor. Yeah, Eric Soong was um, the one from Enterprise. And he feels a lot like this one here. The difference is, is at the end of it all... He ultimately makes the right decision. He so, amends. yeah. So the, we know that the the Soongs, at least the ones we have been privy to, their uh, offspring ancestors, they live in the gray and oftentimes dabble within the unethical. But in the end, they choose the right course. That's where I'm kind of conflicted because it doesn't seem like they're going to do that with Adam with Adam soon. And I don't know if I, I don't know if that feels right because do we really want to know that Soong's the soon legacy has such a hateful past? Well, we've always, we've always known that even data's father Soong, even him he wasn't the nicest man. He was very jaded, but he had his one connection to humanity was his wife. They're unethical people. They're unethical people, but there's still that. But they have love of family. Love of family. Hasn't there's that, that always, glowing hope, you know? Yeah. And you also mentioned the legacy. A legacy has always been important to them. And many times, I, I want to say in that episode that introduced Noonien Soong, that episode was a very powerful episode because it was a display of uh, of selfish desire for one's own legacy, but also embedded within that selfishness was a deep love for his, for family. his family and his 
his created children, you know, think, lore and data. And think about it too in that story. Noonien Sung, even Lore, who we all agree as Star Trek fans is one of the greatest villains in Star Trek TNG history, but even Lore, he would not turn against his son, even to the point that basically his son killed him. And his dad would not actually say anything wrong with him and accepted his fate. That whole thing right there encapsulates what the Sung family legacy is all about. Right. So my point, I guess, David, now that you have voiced that, is do we want to see a reconciliation of selfishness, legacy, and love through Adam Soon's actions within the next two episodes so that it feels more consistent with everything else we've seen of Soon? Or do we want this to be the anomaly, the odd man out, the, the worst of the Soong? This is what happens when the Soongs allow their unethical side to completely, to completely consume them. And I think that basically it would be better if they were just to go the route that I think that they're going to go where Adam comes to the realization that his daughter is more important than his legacy. His family is more important. And then he goes that route. See, I, I feel like that would be more Star Trek. That would be more Star Trek because to go the other route, yeah, it's cool. It's twisted. It's new. But it goes against every single principle we've known as Star Trek fans is that's not the way to Gene Roddenberry's utopia. Yeah. <laughs> that, I would like to see a little bit of hope and optimism when it comes to the Sung. Yes. Because that's what they did so well with Eric Soong and Enterprise. Because I remember when I was originally watching the the episodes of Enterprise, I was I was really intrigued. I loved what they were doing with Eric Soong and the Augment storyline. But I was also disappointed in how bad they, he came off as a character and as a person. I'm like, oh, I wanted Soong to be good. But by the end, they course correct and they realize or he realized the error in his ways. Yeah. So they, they were able to fix it. So I'm hoping they do that because at the, because what enterprise was trying to do is they were trying to focus on the optimistic side yes. of, of this storyline rather than ending it in doom and gloom and painting this portrait of just sadness. So I, I, I'm hoping they do that with, with this as well. We will see. We'll see now. Dave, the seven of nine stuff was good. We pretty much touched on it at the beginning of the show. So let's just go through it very briefly here. I feel like this season has been more true to her established characterization. As I said, in Voyager, a big part of her initial story was about her loss of connectedness, yeah. which is paradoxical because she's also an individual that suffers from a trauma Via the assimilation. Yes. I mean, that is a, an issue that they had always used as a factor when writing her story, the, especially the initial story. I want to say the first season that Seven of Nine was introduced into Voyager. They really delved into this, this conflict, this internal conflict between her need, because that's all she has known pretty much her entire life, of being connected and having voices in her head. Yes. And now this this idea that she was violated and she's aware that she was violated 
And yet there's comfort in that connectedness. That connectedness. And she has to deal with the fact that she is now alone and she has to learn to be an individual. So that has always been at the forefront of Seven's characterization. Characterization. So using that established trauma, I feel like was a, an effective way to express these notions uh, and connect them to Gerardi and what's happening with the poor queen. Yeah. And that's the thing that I really liked because the one thing that I felt really frustrated about in season one was you bring in seven and you don't make any, any movement or any knowledge about her time on Voyager. Do you see the difference yeah. It, with seven this season and last year, because last year she was just, as I have said, she was, she was Sarah Connor, Sarah Connor. She had a gun and she kicked everyone's ass and shot people. But the, and I still question that decision because I don't know a seven of nine who ever acted like that. So this seven is way more on par. Oh yeah. And the, the amazing thing to me is like they've removed. I like the fact that, Seven is acting off even in the throughout the season because technically she got what she've always wanted. All those augments and all the yeah. implants are gone. Yeah. But she still has that, just like you alluded to. She still remembers. She still remembers. Yeah. The memories stay with her. And it's it's one of those things that I'm like, yes, thank you. Thank you for actually still, even if you remove the implants, I was worried that basically they would say, oh, she's completely cured. She doesn't have, she doesn't have to deal with the yeah. Borg anymore. But carrying on the story of her hatred, her absolute hatred for the Borg mm -hmm. makes sense. It does. Because she's coming at it as a, as a victim. It's a good story for her this year. Just because she doesn't have the scars doesn't mean those scars aren't hidden. Yeah. And that's what I thought was really awesome the moment that her and Raffi were talking and then seven snaps and turns the conversation on Raffi and because Raffi's trying to instigate and she's trying to motivate manipulate. seven or mani manipulate yeah. and seven turns it on her. And then you, you follow that up with all of seven's trauma. I, th I, I actually wanted to do a slow golf clap because yeah, at least they acknowledge that fact she has a history. She's not Sarah Connor. Yes. And I like that you stress she has a history. She has a history. Because this is something we've, we said all last season. When you bring in characters like this, you should only bring them in, not for nostalgia purposes. There's no reason for that. Star Trek should be beyond nostalgia. We, Star Trek doesn't need that bullshit. Yeah. What Star Trek needs is well-defined characters and we have hundreds of them already established. So if you're going to bring in one of those hundreds of characters into your story, then use the elements that have already been set up for you and make it work for your story. And in season one, everything we know of seven was not fully utilized in season one at yes. all. This season, David is a perfect example of using a character, not for, nostalgia purposes but because her story would fit perfectly well with what they're trying to do this season yeah and that's why this season is a success so far when it comes to seven story and it yes. justifies why you brought her out of the basement wherever this character has been stashed for the last <laughs> 20 plus years 
and they're now using her correctly. So I'm very happy with that as well. I hope the trend continues. That's the thing. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the big thing in this episode, which was all the Q stuff that you were jumping into. Because, dude, that, that, so even some of the shots during that scene was actually really well done. I liked everything <laughs> we were given with the Q stuff because not only was it informative, uh, but it was also pretty much on par with what we know of this Q here. Yes. So a few things were officially explained. He was sick and he is dying. He's dying. Appropriately, the writers use things we know of Q to strengthen the idea that he's going through an existential crisis. You had mentioned uh, Voyager. Now, the difference with Voyager, and I see a lot of people unfairly blasting Q's storyline and Voyager and that he had no point. Oh, no. And yeah, I would disagree. I, I disagree. Now, Q in Star Trek The Next Generation was used as a writing device to essentially help us understand Picard and also pose philosophical questions. In Voyager, it became when he would pop up into Voyager, it was more about him as a character and fleshing out him as a character. That's what worked in Voyager. It wasn't about him trying to pose questions for Janeway because that would have felt horrible. It, it, instead of trying to carbon copy what they did in TNG, they decided to make him essentially a character that they were going to explore. His problems, his issues, his ideology, his outlook. And they are using a lot of those elements to shape this cue here. The idea that he's going through an existential crisis, he's come face to face with his own mortality. And though he doesn't have a problem necessarily with his life coming to an end. In fact, there was, I want to say there was a semblance of, uh, I want to say of, of peace to this idea that he was going to die. He's, but he's utterly disenchanted yeah. with the meaningless. The meaningless. Uh, of his death, the meaninglessness of his death. He had initially thought that his mortality would lead to a grand threshold of purpose and meaning, and it hasn't. Now, this presumably is what motivated him to interfere with Picard's life once again. It seems like he's attempting to carve out meaning through whatever he's attempting to do with Picard. So, Hugh's actions are not necessarily 100% consistent with typical Q, which is solely about Picard. This seems to be about Picard, but also about him wanting to, uh, to find meaning in his life before he dies. And whatever Picard has to do with it, I'm sure it's not going to end incredibly well for anyone. Uh, but at least it feels consistent with Q. Yeah. Th there are a few choice words that was used to describe his intent uh, that we can possibly derive meaning from. Simulacrum. Now, that's actually a part of philosophy as well, which yes. easily has to do with a thousand different areas of philosophy. But we're going to focus on what it would mean for this specific episode of Star Trek. Simulacrum is never... Is never... It says... Uh, Jesus, David, I lost my train of thought now. <laughs> the simulacrum, do you want me to jump in? Yeah, yeah, okay, hold on. Okay, so basically there was a 1980s phil, uh, philosopher that
that sought to examine the relationships between reality, symbols, and society. Yes. In particular, the significations and symbolism of culture and media involved in constructing an understanding of shared existence. Yeah. It's basically, it's, it, it deals with the representation or imitation of a person or a thing. That basically, you know, when you think of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. And basically, what does that represent? Well, is it, that represents, you know, for a lot of people, the Statue of Liberty represents America, USA, red, white, and blue, um, freedom, all that stuff. That symbol is tied to those meanings. Why is that? <laughs> and similarly, ah, I almost said it. <laughs> similarly, like with Q... <laughs> The question becomes, why is Picard so important? And it's it, it's really cool, dude, when you actually take a step back as a Star Trek fan. And Star Trek fans have to take a step back and see the really awesomeness that what this whole argument's all about is because we do this as Star Trek fans. Why do we always personify Picard as the greatest of all captains? Because he represents these quote-unquote ideals yeah. that that we tie to being a great captain. Okay, why? <laughs> yeah. Why is he that symbol? Yeah, and there's truth in symbols, and that's something that yeah. this philosopher had said. He said the uh, simulacrum is never that which conceals the truth. It is the truth which conceals that there is none. There is none, yes. Which is a bit nihilistic. It is. To a degree, because in a lot of ways, the, the adage is we put these we put these ideals to those me symbols, but at the end of the day, it's just a symbol. So, yeah. like, you look at the Statue of Liberty and it, it, it's a very nihilistic thing to say is basically if the Statue of Liberty was just torn down, does that end the world? Yes. No. So what exactly is Q saying then by uttering that word is he trying to say that he is the symbol of all shared existence is he saying that picard is the symbol of all federation existence i think uh, the way i took out of that was like especially when you take into account q's story and how it's tied to picard and we started the whole journey with q and picard with the question of is humanity it, are they worthy of being out in the stars? Yeah. And Captain Picard was the one who answered that. And all of a sudden for Q, he's like going, well, he's the symbol. He's, he's the reason I see him as the reason why that, why, why humanity is worthy. And that's what started Q's whole journey in trying to understand humanity and see, okay, why are they worthy? Then he goes to, you know, deep space nine with Cisco realizes that basically not all captains are alike and Cisco is not going to act like Picard, but Cisco is still a great man. Yeah. And he respects him at the end of the day. Then you flash forward to, to his, his interactions with Janeway, which was more personal. He decided uh, as a, as a character, now all the things I'm going to deal with Janeway are more personal things about death, things about raising a child legacy, dealing with a relationship, all those things are all personal to us as humans. And there's Q trying to understand, okay, what are all these meanings? Yeah. But at the end of the day, what started it? Captain Picard. All yeah. those represent Captain Picard now to Q. It's definitely 
something that could be interpreted. We could probably spend an hour trying to interpret it, his exact, his exact meaning, or I should say at least the writer's intent with having this character utter certain words. Oh, because dude. also with yeah. simulacrum, you also have the the connections to a constructed perceived reality. So it can also, he can also be talking about the realities in which they are trying to bring about because he changed the past. So there's a lot of different things we can pick apart here. Some, most of which will probably be nothing but fodder. So let's move past that fire starter. He also said that word, which I mean, yes. that's very simple and it speaks for itself. Yes. He's the motivator. He is the, the hand that he creates the wind. Simply it's a God statement. It's a God statement. Yeah. So Picard essentially is God. I don't know. I see to me, it feels like Q is trying to say he's in control of everything. Your perceived reality. If you take Similicrum as well as Firestarter, it feels like he is alluding to the fact that he is in fact the God of all existence and that he is in control of our lives. That's what it seems like he was trying to say. But again, there is a lot to pick apart There's and a lot pick to through. Pick so. Because then he turns it into like, then he has the crisis that basically at the end of his existence, there was nothing. He's just being petty. <laughs> I feel like a lot of what he was saying was just him being angry. So. Oh, easily, easily. It's very, the way I saw it was like, if people are familiar with Nietzscheism, I think that's how you say it. But that type Nietzscheism, of yeah. Nietzscheism with that type of philosophy, it is very kind of angry and hateful. That's and why I, I like it. And I looked at I looked at Q and I'm basically going, I, I was what uh, I was watching that scene. And I'm like going, Q just turned into Nietzsche and right in front of me because he just freaking is angry and flat out like going, everything's a waste. Yeah, it's not necessarily <laughs> angry. I would say it's more pessimistic. Pessimistic, yeah, probably. All right, so ultimately this aspect of the episode explained some of Q's intent, but it also helped solve the issue pertaining to the FBI agent. The idea that humans can get stuck in the past, we dwell on the past, and sometimes to our detriment, um, there were clear parallels between Picard and the FBI agent that were (laughs) being drawn, which clearly is just strengthening the points from last episode. The idea being that when something is broken inside, it stays with you. You live in the past until you're able to reconcile it. Uh, you do the work because you want to evolve. Now, this for me was the best part of the entire episode because it strengthens Roddenberry's view of how humanity finally achieved enlightenment by pondering our past, examining our mistakes. We then become better equipped to make the changes needed to be better. Yeah. So the purpose of the FBI agent also might have been used to strengthen the idea or preparing the audience for David. Are you ready? The theory we've been talking about uh, for the last few episodes and that, and that is the predestination paradox or the causal loop paradox. Here we go. So for example, when he had stumbled upon the Vulcans, when he was a child, And then they came to the conclusion that he had to be that boy so he can be that man to let them go. That is a causal loop statement. Statement. So that bit 
strengthens the theory that we are in fact dealing with a paradox loop, a predestination paradox loop. We only have two episodes to see whether or not it comes about. But if you look at that FBI agent, what what other point is there for having this odd subplot involved? Now, I do like the statement, the Gene Roddenberry statement, but also you could have made that statement without this weird subplot. So unless the FBI agent was used used to strengthen the idea of the predestination paradox by setting down some crumbs and essentially explaining and getting the audience adjusted to the idea that some things need to happen in order for the next thing to also take place, then I understand this subplot. If, in fact, we're not dealing with some type of predestination paradox, I'm going to have to fucking question why you bring (laughs) bring in in. an odd subplot that really made no difference big difference to the story other than waste 45 minutes. Exactly. So real storyline. Do we even want to talk about it? (laughs) You said you didn't want to talk about negative. Well, you know what, David, let's just move into our final thoughts. (laughs) Let's move into our final thoughts now. Let's move into our final thoughts and we'll discuss after our final thoughts. You know what? Let's make, the negative part of our final thoughts and okay. we'll keep it that way. We keep it brief and exactly. we don't, and we don't overly become negative. Okay. So David, this episode feels consistent with the rest of season two. There is a greater understanding of star Trek at work here. The showrunner in charge, along with his team of writers, they obviously have a much greater handle on the world of Star Trek and the characters they are using. 100% agree. It's like night and day yeah. when, it, when you compare season one to and season, season two. two. That being said, there are some cracks that are starting to show. There are issues pertaining to Gerardi's story. And the story of Gerardi in itself is actually quite interesting. It's intriguing. I don't have a problem with that story. I think that's the word I, intriguing. What it's I intriguing. Ha- what I have a problem with is that it feels like these writers think we have 25 episodes to deal with all of the things going on and they're trying to fill up these episodes with filler elements. Yes. Because honestly, as of right now, where we are in this season, season 2, Moving into the penultimate episode, which is the ninth episode of the season. It feels like the amount of story, the amount of actual story that they have given to us could probably fit. And I'm including the finale we haven't even seen yet, Could probably have been told in five or six episodes. So it seems like the writers put together a story. They realize it only comprised of. Five or six episodes. Five or six episodes. And they had 10 episodes to fill. Yes. So they create subplots that don't fucking matter. The Rio stuff just don't fucking matter. Yes. And that's what's fucking sad at the end of the day. The Gerardi stuff matters because they're using Gerardi to tell a story that they could have used seven to also tell. Exactly. Meanwhile, we have seven and Rafi 
meandering in the fucking streets of California <laughs> for five episodes, episodes now. now. Just fucking wasting time. Yes. Rios is acting like nothing's at stake. He's trying to get his dick wet. I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? Then we have the FBI agent subplot, which does work when you look at it as based on how I interpreted that scene. When you look at it objectively. It does work. However, you want to make Rio stuff not feel so incoherent when you place it next to the rest of the season. What they should have done is they should have introduced this FBI agent early on. Exactly. The moment they landed in 21st century Earth, they should have also started the FBI agent storyline. He should have been the one who arrested Rios. Should have just had this FBI agent in the background tracking what was happening. Yes. There's a rumor that someone escaped from a bus, a group of women who were also seen at a police station dematerializing before the very eyes of the cops when they were pulled from the police car. If you remember that scene, they should have introduced this FBI agent story early on. And that way he could have been the connected thread that would have tied in Rafi and Seven's meandering storyline it would have brought in Gerardi's storyline, connected it with Rios' storyline. And then at the end of that, we have what we had in this episode. Yes. Then when he reconciles and he, you could have had the exact same message, the exact same philosophical approach, and it would have made more sense rather than some odd random FBI subplot that I'm telling you now, Dave, this was not originally planned when they wrote the first draft. There's no way this element was included. It feels like a fix, something to fill the gaps because they didn't have enough content to fill the story. Yes. And at the end of the day, that's what the season's turning into a bit. Now, the, the overall story still works. The story of Picard and Q, the main focus, the main intent is still strong, but the side stuff is falling apart. And I don't know why we're continuing to focus on things that obviously don't really matter to the story. You remove the Rio stuff. You still have the same story. Just remove some of that, that stuff and give us more of what's important, which is Picard and Q and what's happening there in, in story a. So that's all I'm going to say when it comes to the negative side I did have some questions. Uh, I know that we are typically a little more critical about shows when there are obvious problems. And I, we were called on our shit by a couple of our listeners saying, why are we not calling certain things out? Are you guys really attempting to be solely positive this season? And listen, I am positive because I'm enjoying this season of Picard. Although that doesn't mean I don't see the writing errors that could affect the overall quality of this season. Yes. So that being said, I'm going to give this episode a 78% on the RMD score. David, give me your final thoughts and your overall feelings on the season so far. Okay. So far, I a hundred percent agree with your state, your statement that when you compare season one to season two, there's, there can't be any argument. Season two is better crafted it is better handled. You have a better team behind it and everything. So night and day, season two is better. In regards to this episode, this episode was the one for me where I basically came to the realization 
about the problem with season two. And I try not to listen to the negative chatter among fans because there's just a lot of hate trolls out there that just want to hate on Picard just because. But I actually went into this series wanting to give it a chance. You failed me at season one, but season two, you you introduced my favorite character. And honestly, they've been treating the character of Q very good. You know, this is about Q's legacy. And they've doubled down and went back and rehabilitated how they picture their main character in Picard. So I give them kudos for that. But the one thing that hit me in the head this episode was everything else around it. You're starting to see the cracks. You're starting to see that what's the point of this character unless you actually try to make him more important further on in, in, in the season uh, series. And you only got two episodes left introducing the FBI agent, the concept that they threw out there for the story for the FBI agent. I have no problem with, I thought that was cool. Yeah. But then I, at the end of the episode, I'm like, going, well, what's the point though? <laughs> there was no point. What was the point in the very end? Uh, well, other than strengthening ideas that had already been introduced. Exactly. And then, if you're just doing that with all your characters, your your characters are starting to get bland. Rios is just basically being used as an agenda piece. They're, at this they're point. losing their individual stories. Exactly. Is what's happening. It's they're starting losing. to become diluted. Remember a couple of episodes ago, I, I actually had this written in my notes to point this out. Picard season two is started off really well, but it's a, it's it's a house that's built on a deck of cards. You you slight it could slightly shift and all the cards could fall right now. You're starting to see the cards shaking. Have you ever and tried to have sex on a house of cards? That's <laughs> that, no, that's quite the feat. That's quite the feat. But like my main my main issue was like at the end of the episode, I'm like going, oh, okay. Uh I was I could zoom right through this episode and pick up nothing because all the important stuff we already know. We know about the Q and Picard thing. And then I came to the realization. David, that's what I was thinking when I was doing my notes. I'm trying to go through what we actually learned in this episode. Exactly. And there are things that were made clear. Clear. But nothing that we didn't already Already pretty much know or understand. Exactly. And like... The whole story of Q and Picard could easily at this point have been told in four episodes. I actually broke this down. No, I actually, agree with you. I, I saw this. So four episodes you spent on Picard and Q, you've done it well, but we're at, we're in episode nine, right? This is episode nine or episode eight. Yeah. Episode and eight. Episode eight. Yeah. So we're at episode eight. So the rest of the time that you spent outside of those four episodes of time of Q and Picard, you spent on all the other side characters and none of it makes sense. None of it. So because we write, we could see what we could see the strategy behind what they're doing. Yeah. And this is what you do when you don't fully have enough content to fit your episode order. Yeah. And that's what they're doing because you are right. Pretty much everything we've been given, you can probably fit into four episodes, four 60 minutes, not 45 minute episodes, 
four 60-minute episodes, you could have pretty much told the exact same story because everything they're doing is stalling. Yes. They have Rios get arrested. They have Picard get hit by a car. (laughs) (laughs) They have Seven of Nine and Rafi fight over their relationship. They have Gerardi fall asleep and then get assimilated. They have Picard get arrested. Those are stalling plot points. Those are things you do when you're trying to buy your, when you're trying to buy time. And then on top of that, the one thing that we've also, we touched on one of the characters they introduced, which was the Sung storyline, right? And then do we forget that basically there's another storyline that they're talking about, which is Renee's? Renee's storyline, where she's supposed to go up in space and find, like, bacterial um, She's been form. all but forgotten. She's all but forgotten, but she was supposed to be important. She like. should have been... Okay, so you're right, <laughs> she, because you have Q playing psychiatrist. Psychiatrist! You have Renee Picard being, uh, uh, I guess, essentially, as we had thought, set up to be a major player in the story, and suddenly... She's also been sidelined for meandering storylines. So, so, which I feel like if the story is about or it rests on the shoulders of Renee Picard, then how the fuck has she been in only one episode? One episode. And then on top of that, so just to just to actually form my thoughts clearly for the audience, besides the Car- Picard and Q storyline, you have Renee's storyline. That's one. You have Rios, two. You have, uh, Gerardi storyline three. You have Raffi and, and seven four. You have Soong storyline, which is five. You have Martin's storyline, the FBI agent now, which is six. You have Guinan's story, which is seven. You have the Watcher story, which has also been dropped. Which has been <laughs> dropped, but that's eight. <laughs> yeah, see, David, what they should have done is they should have gotten away from the Rio story, the seven of nine story, the Gerardi story. Maybe keep that because you need that Borg element. I understand that. But they, instead of trying to craft individual stories for Rios, what they should have done is written Rafi, Seven, and Rios stories that aid Picard's progress and his story. Exactly. That's what they do. When you have a show focused around one individual, everyone's stories should not be individual stories. They need to be stories that guide and push forward the main storyline. And instead, we're getting odd offshoots that don't really matter. Mm -hmm. Because if you had gotten rid of those, you could have tied Rios into the Watcher storyline, into the Renee Picard storyline, into the actual Picard himself storyline. There's so many things you could have done with those characters that would have helped the overall narrative of the season instead they're getting stuck on these odd plot points so yes david you are right there's a lot of moving parts that are probably unnecessary and i don't want to sound contradictory because we're gonna we might sound contradictory david because we just said it feels like what we've been given can be shoved into four episodes yes and when we say that we're talking about the actual story of picard of picard that actually matters when you when you wipe away all the nonsense, the actual story could fit in four episodes. And yes. then what we're getting with these other characters is essentially just filler that just doesn't filler. really help with the actual story. Yeah. And that's the thing is like the important crux of everything is story A, which is Picard and Q. So that's why I was like, 
this was the moment that I basically said, okay, season two, I will give you props that basically season, you are better than season one. Look what they did Very with the well. first three episodes. The exactly. first three episodes were flawless were because flawless. everyone's character was about one thing. It was about, about getting Picard. the story started that all, it all encompassed a singular character. Yes. Picard. Then when we got to the 21st century, everyone's story is going in other directions. <laughs> other directions. So my score for this episode was a straight 70. This is the this to me is the worst episode because this is the moment where I basically went, "Are you kidding me?" They're they're they added another story point line, and it just seems to be meant for nothing, especially in the. What are you giving this it. one? A seventy. Is seven zero. It's still not. That's still not a bad grade. It's, it's just not a it's bad not grade. Where but if you been. compare it to every everything. That's the thing that I'm worried. Of. That's the thing I was worried about for this season is like, we start off really good. We start off really good. And then it just plummets. Yeah. Now taking a look at this season on Rotten Tomatoes, it's interesting to note that season one was, or I should say is sitting at an 87%. It is not 87. From the critical side. <laughs> From the critic side. Now, from the audience score, it's 54%, which is really that's, bad. Okay. That's, that's where I would put it. <laughs> yes. But from the critical standpoint, it's at 87%. Now, yes. for season two, the critical review is sitting at 93%, and the audience score is 34%. So the critics seem to be aligned with us, which would make sense. That's what we are. We're critics. We're seeing the positives of this season and how it has, it's a vast improvement over last season when it comes to, well, at least up to episode eight, the structure was pretty sound for the most part. Yeah. Um, but the audience, as we sit at the top of the show, <laughs> they're struggling. They're struggling. 34%, David, that's not good. It's a struggle bus. That is not good. You need to have the support of the bulk of your fandoms. If, if, your franchise is going to continue. You have to win over the fan base. Star Wars did it finally with the Mandalorian. And I'm talking about post Lucasfilm Disney buyout. They finally were able to achieve critical as well as fan appraisal appraise. Yeah. Critic and fan appraise was one with the Mandalorian. In this new era of Star Trek, even though I like Star Trek Discovery quite a bit, for the most part, the bulk of the Star Trek fans do not like it. And now we see the same thing with Picard. With Picard. Our two live action shows are not wins when it comes to fans. When it comes to the bulk of the fans, they are not wins. No. And you cannot continue the course that they are on. They cannot continue on this course. They're going to have to make changes. They're going to have to acquiesce a little bit to what fans want. And, and here's the thing. That's the thing I'm afraid of, though, Mike. Oh, I know. Because it's season a, three. It's a double-edged sword. Season three is going to be coming out. Every All the fans, oh, I can't wait. All the TNG guys are back. Okay, you guys get what you want. But mark my words. Mark my words. <laughs> season three could be a shit storm. Well, listen, David, um, <laughs> season three, 
I feel like it already has an unfair advantage because the bulk of the Star Trek fans are going to see the TNG crew crew back together. Yes. And they're not going to actually review it based on academic merits. They're just exactly. going to review it based on their own nostalgic excitement. And I will be there to pop their balloon, Mike. <laughs> I, will be, I will be there. I am the doomsayer. I'm the guy in the, on the corner basically, mark my words. God is coming. <laughs> Depending on how this season ends, I'm optimistic about season three and the TNG crew returning. I feel like if this is the end of Picard, then it would feel appropriate to bring back the original TNG crew who really helped define him as a character, as opposed to the Picard crew that really has no history with this character. So I feel like that is appropriate as long as they focus on story over nostalgia and cool little fan moments that they know fans will like. Now, yeah. that being said, David, we do need something to change. And that is just me being objective because I enjoyed the fuck out of the fourth season of Star Trek Discovery. I yeah. feel like that was their strongest season to date. Oh, by far. Yeah. Um, and I'm liking the bulk of season two of Picard, but we are in the minority. The bulk of the Star Trek fans are not liking Picard nope. or Discovery. <laughs> this is what J.J. Abrams came up against. This is what, who is the leader over there? Uh, Kathleen, Kennedy, Kathleen Kennedy, the person in charge of Star Wars. She had to also reconcile the fact that she's making star Wars that no one likes. Now we're approaching the end of the second season of the Kurtzman era's second live action star Trek series. And it's still being hated by fans. Yeah. That's not a good thing. That's that officially signals a problem. Yes. Now, some people might've said, well, it, it signaled a problem back with discovery when it kept sucking. But that could also be looked at from the powers that be. I'm just telling you how executives would look at it. They would probably look at discovery as simply, Oh, well, this is just not their cup of tea, but the next thing we make fans are going to love it. Well, here's the next thing they've made. And the bulk of the fans are not jiving with it. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, that does present a problem that will have to be addressed in the near future before they continue to move forward with live action iterations of Trek. Oh, yeah. That's what has me worried for Strange New Worlds. Because, well, maybe this will be the Mandalorian for Star Trek. Maybe yeah. this will be the series that finally gives the Kurtzman era the fan win that it needs. The only problem is, though, Mike, as I said, fans will get what they want, but then when you really take a step back and you see the product that's given to them, is it really good? Listen, David, I just want, you know, I don't get what I want. What I want <laughs> is seven of nine mirror universe Kira. Oh yeah. The two is DePaul. DePaul in the shower. DePaul and, uh, <laughs> I got to throw Guinan in there. And, and red dress Agnes with red her combat boots. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm just there with Guinan. I, I and, want that in the holodeck. Now. Janeway in the bathtub. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Dude, Janeway in the bathtub was hot. Just that the way cool. you said it. I want Janeway bent over in the bathtub. <laughs> That's so inappropriate. And if Kate Mulgrew was listening to this, she would find a way to contact you and tell you, 
how she felt about that. Which, and you know, and you know what? she would like it. I would love. I, I would be very honored. I take. I'll tell Kate Milgrew. I'd still bang you, man. Oh, geez. okay. That's gonna be cut from the show. That's borderline creepy. That's borderline creepy. <laughs> All right. I want to thank everyone for listening. That does bring us to the end of our discussion. Hopefully, we didn't babble on and on and on and on. And if you guys have some thoughts you want to share with us, you can either find us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Star Trek from the holodeck, or you can find us on Twitter. What is our Twitter account? At from from the holodeck. There you go. Let us know what you think of the card so far. And if you have any fears with these last two episodes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.